For what do I have If I don't have you, Jesus What in this life Could mean anymore You are my rock You are my glory You are the lifter of my head Good morning, everybody. I hope you all are doing well. So glad and really, for me, a privilege to be here with all of you. And uh, not my first time coming up. I'm really blessed to have come up here a couple times before. Maybe you were here when I taught at one of the times before. Uh, It's always an amazing thing when when you get an invitation to come and speak at another church because you kind of wonder like, how on earth did they even find me? Like, I'm not some big name. Uh, I don't, I pastor a church just like this church, not a lot, you know, probably about the same size as this church. And so you kind of wonder, how did they get in touch with me when Pastor Ross first had reached out to me? I think it was about 2015 and invited me to come up. I, I asked him then like, well, how did you even know to find me? And he said, well, We have a lot of kids who go down to the Bible College, Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta. I've had the privilege for about the last 15 years of teaching at Calvary Chapel Bible College there in Marietta and uh, a real blessing to be able to do that week in and week out. And, uh, And so Ross said, you know, we, we had heard from some of our students who were there, they really liked your teaching. And I was so blessed because that was pretty much the first time I'd ever heard from anybody at the Bible College that they liked my teaching. They, <laughs> You just never know. Like I'm standing there teaching to a classroom and they kind of just stare at you the entire time. And you're wondering like, are you even alive? Like I, you just wonder. So, um, but I have to say, I'm really blessed that this church, um, you guys send a lot of people down to Calvary Chapel Bible College and we are thankful for that. Um, I think that Calvary Chapel Bible College is a great school and uh, we're blessed that you are sending some of your kids down there to be ruined by us. I say that because we want to ruin them for a normal Christian life. We want them to be completely sold out to Jesus. And uh, I have a couple of students right now who are in my church planting class who are from this church. A little shout out to Jordan uh, Skiles is in my class. And also John Minor, I think, is from the church up here too. So uh, really blessed by those guys. So the first time you get invited, you're really blessed and you just want to make sure that you get through it and people are encouraged. If someone invites you back a second time, you kind of wonder, like I was wondering, did Pastor Adam and Pastor Carlin, did they, did they tell Ross the truth that it was actually, did they tell him it was good? Because that was very nice of him to call me back a second time. But then I got a call a third time and now I've got Pastor Ross's phone number in my phone. And when I saw his, his name pop up, I just answered and said, yes, I'll be there. So. <laughs> So really glad to be here. And my, my wife was able to come with me this time. Andrea's up here in the front row. Thank you very much. We've been married for 13 years. Am I right? Is it 13? Almost 13 years, yeah. We have four kids. Uh, Ethan, he is our 10-year-old. He's going on 35. And uh, Addison, um, she's nine years old and she's our artist. And then Evangeline, Evangeline's seven and she's like at volume 11 all the time. And then Elliot, he's five and a half. And to kind of give you a little understanding a little bit about Elliot, Elliot, was supposed to be playing baseball this season, but he hasn't, like, we get to the games and he's just not into it. So we had first week, that was strike one. We said, listen, we can try again next week. Didn't happen, that was strike two. We told him, if you're not able to do this a third week, strike three, we're done. So that was a week ago. So we're up here yesterday. My wife's parents have the kids, they take them to baseball, and my mother-in-law, she overheard a conversation with Elliot. Someone asked Elliot, so how's baseball going? He said, I retired. (laughs) 
And then he says, he says, I retired. It's a long story. <laughs> that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about Elliot. Another quick story about Elliot. I was dropping him off at school a month or two ago, and we're standing outside waiting for school to start, and this kid walks by and waves at Elliot, and Elliot kind of gives him a little nod, wave. I said, who's that? And he goes, no one you need to know. <laughs> So that's Elliot. My wife tells me that he's just like his dad. So, <laughs> hey, would you open with me if you've got your Bibles? I know you probably do because this church is a Bible church to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels. And if you wouldn't mind standing with me at our church, we read through the scriptures, we stand for the reading of the word and you can sit for the reading of the preacher. Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 1. There we read, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. And so he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And so he made haste and he came down and he received Jesus joyfully. But when they saw it, they, were all, they all complained saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Father, we thank you for those words, those words of complaint of the crowd there, but they're good news for us that you went to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Lord, all of us standing here today are so blessed and pleased that that's true. And so God, we pray that you would speak to us today, you'd open our ears that we would hear, to open our hearts that we'd receive. Lord, open our minds that we'd understand your word. You promised that you'd give us the spirit of truth who would guide us into all truth and teach us all things. And so, Lord, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would teach us today. Give us insight, wisdom, understanding. Cause your word to have its perfect work in us, transforming us by the renewing of our minds, making us more and more into the likeness of your kids. God, do that work in us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all those that agreed said, you can be seated. I'm convinced that having and knowing purpose in life is essential. That it is very, very important for us to have and to know our purpose in this life. Especially if we're going to live this life in a way where we have real meaning, true meaning in life. And I don't think that you can experience life, not in the way that God intends for you to experience it without knowing some very important answers to some very important questions. I actually talked about this a few years ago when I came up because it's something that, that I find to be really, really important. I was doing a teaching in the book of Ephesians a number of years ago on identity. And so I talked a little bit about these questions when I came up at that time in 2015. The important questions that we need to answer if we are really going to be able to navigate 
the difficulties of this life are the questions of identity, purpose, origin, destiny, and morality. So we need to be able to answer the question of who am I, identity. People wrestle with that question. And, and not only the question of identity, but the question of purpose. Why am I here? Origin, where did I come from? Destiny, where am I going after this? And morality is a big question as well. What, what is right? What is wrong? If we're going to really experience transcendent meaning in life, we need to be able to answer those questions. And really what you find as you start to interact with people on a deeper level, deeper than just the, you're going to get the mail at the mailbox and see your neighbor and say, hey, how you doing? And they say, I'm good, how are you? I'm good, and you walk away. Deeper than that, when you start to have deeper conversations with people, you realize that everybody at some level is wrestling with these questions. They're the questions of worldview. They're the questions of philosophy. And every person has a worldview and a philosophy. And if Christianity is true, of course, spoiler, I, I think that it is. But if Christianity is true, then it needs to be able to answer with more coherent answers these deeper questions of philosophy, of worldview. And in thinking about that, I, I want to zero in on the, the topic of purpose this morning. I'm convinced, and I think you'll probably agree, as you interact with people in our culture, the culture that we live in day in and day out, that the people of our culture, they seem to have some problems, some confusion as it relates to purpose. What is purpose? And one of the evidences of this, one of the ways that we can tell that people are wrestling with the question of purpose is, some news that came out at the end of last year, some research that has shown that for the last three years leading up to 2018, 2016, 17, and 18, for the first time in something like seven decades, life expectancy in the United States of America has decreased. It decreased in 2016, 2017, and again in 2018. And one of the things that's causing this decrease in life expectancy, and it's Life expectancy measured in, in months and weeks, not years, but it's still a decrease, which is disconcerting. But what's adding to this, a lot of researchers have found, is suicide and opioid drug use. And so, so we see in our country that a lot of people are really wrestling with deeper issues of meaning and value and purpose in life, and it's evidenced by what we're seeing happen in our culture. Now, there are differences in opinion or view as to what is causing this existential crisis, we might call it. For some people, it's they look at the malevolence of the world, they look at terrorist attacks and war, they look at all the famines that happen in various places, and, and they are so devastated internally by this, they, they just can't understand how these things just happen in this way. For other people, the, the existential crisis, it's caused by politics. We're just constantly bombarded by politics all day long. It seems like all we ever hear about is this group's view and that group's view and how they don't agree with each other. And so it can weigh on people. For other people, it's, it's issues of finances and economics. There's been news that's been coming out in recent weeks and months that maybe we're headed towards a slowing in the economy and people just feel the, the weight and the pressure of that. And they start to really ask the questions of what is it all about? What's the point? What's the purpose? Where do I find a sustaining meaning in this world? Some people, they look at the world and they say the biggest driver of my, my mood going down is global warming. 
For some of you, you may, you may find that to be strange, but it obviously is causing a lot of people to be very concerned. There's a significant group of people, especially those under 30 in our culture, who are pretty much convinced that this is the major issue of all time. And so people are wrestling with these issues and dealing with this problem of not finding a sustaining meaning. We interact with people almost daily when we get below the surface conversations, people who are wrestling with purpose and meaning. One, one author, he wrote this last year, life is very difficult and rife with suffering and contaminated by malevolence and you need a sustaining meaning and purpose to avoid bitterness and existential depression. One of the thought leaders of our day is a guy by the name of Sam Harris. You may have heard his name before. He is listed among those who are referred to as the four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse. He's an atheist who has a big podcast, one of the most downloaded podcasts in our time. People listen to him every single week, talk about his, his worldview, his ideas, his thoughts. And he is saying that we, even though he's an atheist, he's saying that we humans need to find a sustaining meaning to walk through the difficulties of this life. Now, he is proposing that the best way to find a sustaining meaning is through meditation and through psychedelic drugs. Now, I, I think that there's a lot of people who tried that, like back in the 60s, some of you were here this morning, and you could probably inform him that it didn't work then and it's not gonna work now. But that's what he's saying, that it, we need to find a sustaining meaning in life. Now, I would agree with him that we need a sustaining meaning. But the question is, where do you turn to for sustaining meaning and purpose? Those who recognize the need for sustaining meaning don't often have a good answer for where it comes from. Typically, they'll say that you need to develop your own purpose, and you need to manufacture your own meaning. Which leads me to kind of my grounding proposition for this message. It's point number one. The purpose of Jesus helps us frame and understand our purpose more meaningfully. I think that as you start to understand better the purpose of Christ, it will help you to be able to frame your purpose in this life in a more meaningful way. In other words, the why of Jesus helps us to frame and understand our why as we go through the difficulties of life in this world. Why do you live in the place that you live? Why do you work in the place that you work? Why are you a part of the family that you're a part of? Why are you at the school that you're at? I think that the why of Jesus, when we start to understand his purpose, then it helps us to be able to answer those questions a little bit better and to be able to have more meaning in the answers. Well, that begs the question, how do we determine the why of Jesus? How do we determine the purpose of Jesus? Well, I wanna encourage you, Jesus actually told us specifically what his purpose is. On a number of occasions through the Gospels, he tells us why he lived, why he came, his purpose. He gives it in these I have come statements. For example, one of the I have come statements of Jesus is found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus' disciples come to him because there's crowds of people looking for him, and he says to his disciples, Mark 1, verse 38, let us go to the next town, towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come. I don't think you could get any more explicit than that. We need to go to the next towns and villages so that I can preach, for this purpose, I've come. 
And then in John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus is having a conversation with Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor of Judea. He's the one that we all remember this time of year when we come around to April because we're gonna be celebrating the crucifixion on Good Friday in just a few weeks and then the resurrection three Sundays from today. And so you may know that name, Pontius Pilate. Jesus and he had a conversation on the day that Pontius Pilate condemned him to die by crucifixion. And there, Pontius Pilate in John 18, 37, he says, are you a king? Speaking to Jesus. And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. He said, I have come to bear witness to the truth. I have come to preach the gospel. In John chapter 12, verse 46, there Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. I've come to preach the gospel. I've come to be a light to those who are in darkness. I've come to bear witness to the truth. One of my favorites is found in John chapter 10, verse 10. It's a very famous verse, and some of you probably have heard it before. There he says, the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that you may have it, what? More abundantly. I love that, not just abundantly. I mean, it would be great if Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, that's good. It would be even better if he says, I've come that you may have it abundantly. But he says, I've come that you may have it abundantly, abundantly, more abundantly. Like, what does that look like? I'm not entirely sure, but it sounds really, really good. I want that kind of life. I've come to bear witness to the truth, to bring light to those who are in darkness, to preach the gospel and to give life and that more abundantly. Another one of my favorites is found in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In that verse there, Jesus gives his purpose statement in both the positive and the negative. It was a very typical way that rabbis would teach in the Jewish world of the first century. It's called antithetical parallelism. So he says, I have not come to be served. I've come to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The interesting thing about that statement there is the context of it when Jesus gave it in Mark's gospel because the context was Jesus was with his disciples and his disciples, they were always arguing with one another about something. If you've read through the gospels, you know this argument. They were going back and forth with one another about who would be the greatest. And then Jesus would ask them, hey, what are you guys talking about? They go, oh, nothing, nothing. But in that passage, after they had been arguing about who would be the greatest, two of the disciples, brothers, James and John, they come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, listen, we want you to do for us whatever we want. Sometimes people pray like that. Lord, I want you to do for me whatever I want you to do for me. And so Jesus said to them, well, what do you want? They said, well, we want you to grant that one of us would sit on the right hand and one on the left hand when you come into your kingdom. What they were asking for is we want to be great. We want to be the greatest. And ultimately, after they said that, Jesus said, listen, the son of man has not even come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Point number two, if you're taking notes, Jesus purposed to shine light into darkness, to serve sacrificially and to give life more abundantly. That was his purpose in coming. When he came to this world, of course he came as there's a number of other passages in the scripture where he explicitly says, I have come to save men's souls, which means he's got to give his life a ransom on the cross as Mark 10, 45 says. But, but this is what his purpose was about. And, 
And I'm convinced that when we start to know and understand the purpose of Jesus, then it's going to help us frame and understand our purpose more meaningfully. How does it do that? Because it helps us to start to look through and to think about the circumstances and situations that you find yourself in daily. The neighborhood you live in, the neighbors you live next door to, the, the office building that you go to, the construction site that you're on, the school campus or school classroom that you're in. It starts to cause you to see all of those things as places in which God wants to cause his light to shine in darkness and to use you as you align your life with his purpose to be able to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done in the life more abundantly that he gives. We start to see our circumstances, our situations as the place in which God wants to move his purposes. And pretty much everybody in our culture who writes on the topic of purpose, they say, if you're going to experience a meaningful life, you need to commit yourself to a purpose that is greater than yourself. And I don't think that you can come up with a greater purpose than this one. Now, at this point, there, there may be some that say, well, why? Why should I do these things? Especially why, for example, should I serve others sacrificially and not merely serve myself? You see, the ruling ethos of Americanism, maybe we even should call it Californianism, because we're all Californians here is to serve yourself. We live in a self-serving society that's, that's constantly focused on self-promotion. I mean, this is the epicenter of social media here in the Bay Area. Like this is where we are exporting it all out into the world from this place here in the Bay Area. And, and what is kind of like the core underpinning of social media? Self-promotion constantly. Promote yourself, promote yourself. And Jesus says, I want you to lay your life down sacrificially. And that's totally against our natural inclinations. None of us is naturally selfless. In fact, quite the opposite. We are all naturally selfish. Now, there are some people who say, no, I don't think that we were born selfish. Those are people who don't have kids. <laughs> If, if you think that way, you should go serve in the children's ministry. They could use your help, I'm sure. You'll see really quickly that we are born self-ish. I mean, one of the, the first words that my kids all learned with veracity is mine. <laughs> like, you remember Finding Nemo, the, the seagulls? Mine, 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 mine. That's like all of us. We are not naturally selfless. We're naturally selfish. And we live in a culture that kind of fans that flame of self-promotion and selfishness. In our day, generally speaking, people are working with their respective gifts and talents and abilities and training to gain ascendancy and get to the top of whatever field they're a part of. Want to get to the top. And so culture ends up kind of aligning in these hierarchies that end up looking kind of like pyramids where you have a whole bunch of people that line up at the bottom of the pyramid and as you go up, they go up to this little point at the top and, and people are striving to get to the top of those pyramids, whether it's in the healthcare industry or it's in the military or education or law enforcement or emergency medical services or in business or whatever it may be. Even in the church world, there are people trying to get to the top of these, these hierarchies. 
And that's what we see when we see the disciples coming to Jesus or arguing with one another who would be the greatest or coming to him and saying, can you grant to us that one would be on the right and one would be on the left? We are, even 2,000 years ago, the disciples were oriented towards self-promotion to try and have power and greatness. And this is the culture that we still live in this day. Even to the point that one of the most well-known kind of grandfathers of modern atheism, Friedrich Nietzsche, who coined the phrase, God is dead and we have killed him. He, in his writings, he even says that the whole of humanity is oriented towards a will to power. We're all just seeking to have power and greatness. We're generally trying to work our way to the top. And as a general rule, many times those people who get to the top, they have a tendency to look down in the power hierarchies. There's a whole bunch of discussion about this in our culture right now, both in and outside of the church. But those who get to the top of these power hierarchies, they have a tendency to look down at people down below and say, if they just worked as hard as me, they could get here too. But then you have the people who are on the bottom end of the power hierarchy and they'll look up at those people and they'll say, those people did something immoral or corrupt to get there. That's generally how we look at each other, right? Which is kind of interesting because we come to this passage here in Luke chapter 19 where we have a very similar story to that. We're told in Luke chapter 19, verse one, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. It's a helpful thing to at least remember or for the first time, know what's going on here in this story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the very last time. In just a number of days, weeks at most, Jesus would be experiencing what we're gonna be celebrating in three weeks, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So this is his last journey to Jerusalem in the Gospels. And the city of Jericho was the last outpost that you'd stop at, pilgrims would stop at before they would go up into Jerusalem. Now, for every Jewish male living in the first century under Jewish law, they would all go with their families up to Jerusalem three times a year. So there are multitudes of people traveling at this time to go up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is surrounded by a multitude of people going up to Jerusalem and he's entering and passing through this outpost. He's not gonna stay there but as he does, we read, there was a man there named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Now, when you hear those words, you should hear in your mind, dun, 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 <laughs> the chief tax collector. Tomorrow's April 1st. That means we're two weeks away. Ooh, a chief tax collector. And not only was he the chief tax collector, but he was rich. Ugh the chief tax collector. No one likes paying taxes. Now, we might like the benefits of what comes from paying taxes, but we don't really like paying taxes. And that has been true basically throughout human history. And these people 2,000 years ago, they did not like tax collectors. And it was like amplified far more so than maybe you don't like the tax man. Because in first century Jewish world, the Jewish people lived under the occupation of a foreign government. So they had to pay taxes, not to their own government, but to a foreign government. And there were people in their nation who were Jewish individuals who were paid by the Roman government to collect those taxes. And so they hated those in their culture who were tax collectors because they looked at them as treacherous. They looked at them as turncoats. 
And, and for a tax collector to be rich, that just made it even worse for them. They, they could not stand them. They would put tax collectors in the same classification as harlots and sinners. Harlot, sinner, tax collector went together. They just figured, you're a tax collector, you're a sinner. You're like the worst sinner possible. We don't like you. So Zacchaeus was not a very well-liked guy, but look at what it says in verse three. He sought to see Jesus, who he was. But he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Now, interesting side note. Archaeologists who have researched graves there in the Jewish world at about this time period tell us that the average height of a Jewish man in the first century was five foot six. Some of you right now are feeling kind of tall. But the scriptures tell us that Zacchaeus was very short, which means he's pretty short. I mean, he's probably under five feet. Maybe he's like four foot six. Who knows? He's a wee little man. A wee little man was he. <laughs> you know that if you've helped out with children's ministry, that song's been going through your mind. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. If you don't know that, again, you should go sign up for children's ministry. <laughs> help out. So he ran ahead, verse four, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus for he was going to pass that way. So he's a short little man, but he's industrious. And when Jesus came to that place, chapter 19, verse five, he looked up and he saw him. I, I would suggest to you this was the first time anyone ever looked up and saw Zacchaeus. <laughs> he looked up and he saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, Make haste, quickly, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and he came down and he received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, as I said, as a general rule, those who are, lower on the hierarchical pyramid of power. They have a tendency to look up at those who are higher and figure they got there by some sort of corrupt or immoral means. And so everybody just would have assumed that this wee little man, this tax collector, this rich man, for him to be in his position of power and wealth, he had done something immoral and something wrong to get there. They hated these sort of individuals. They were despised, looked down upon. And this guy being short, not only was he looked down upon, he was overlooked. And yet, point number three, if you're taking notes, Jesus purposed to see those overlooked and looked down upon. He made a point to look for those overlooked and looked down upon. Everyone had a belittling opinion about Zacchaeus, this despised little man. He did something corrupt. He did something immoral to get to the position that he was in. Now that may or may not be true, but it seems like as we read through the remainder of the story that their opinion of Zacchaeus was not well-placed. Look at what we read in verse eight. Then Zacchaeus stood and he said, Lord, look, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. Now, if you've ever heard the story of Zacchaeus taught before, you've probably heard Luke chapter 19, verse eight, taught as Zacchaeus's repentance. That here was this rich, wicked, 
thieving tax collector. Jesus says, I wanna go stay at your house today. And as a sign of repentance, he says, Lord, I will give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything by false accusation, I will restore it fourfold. But I wanna suggest to you that that interpretation is actually not consistent with the scriptures. When you look at this story, Luke chapter 19, verse eight, in the original language, this was originally written in the Greek language, which is a very technical language. It's called an inflected language. And you can tell a lot about the wording, you can tell a lot about the meaning by the way that the words are written. And this passage here is written in the present active indicative. When when Zacchaeus says, I give half my goods to the poor, he's not saying I will do this. He's saying this has been my pattern of life going back over time. I give as a pattern of life my half my goods to the poor. And if I've stolen anything, taken anything by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. That's twice as much as the law required. And so he is making a statement here when he says these things, he's presenting to the Lord and to all those who are hearing him, I'm not the bad guy you think that I am. I give half my goods to the poor. And so here you have this wealthy man at the top of the pyramid looking down and saying, listen, I'm better than you think I am. I'm more righteous than you might imagine. I give half my goods to the poor. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you give half, 50% in your giving to the church? I don't think any of us do that. And so this guy was a lot better than a lot of people assumed him to be. And Jesus, verse nine, said to him, today, Salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, this wee little man, this tax collecting rich man who had been actually probably a pretty good guy when it came to giving and his adherence to keeping the law. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. And then note this, verse 10. This is another purpose statement of Jesus. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Point number four, Jesus came seeking to save the lost and despised. And I think this is an important point because when you read through the lines of this story, you see that there's this group of people who they assume themselves to be better off than this rich tax collector because they assumed that he had done something immoral or corrupt to get what he had. And they thought Jesus shouldn't go stay at this guy's house. Why? Because he's a sinner. And what were they saying when they were saying, that guy's a sinner? What were they saying about themselves? We're so much better than he is. But Zacchaeus stands and he says, listen, I'm not as bad as you think that I am. You assume that I'm a sinner, but I give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. So what do you think Zacchaeus trusted in? I'm a pretty good guy. I give better than all of you. I keep the law. But what did Jesus reveal when he says there in verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. All of those people gathered there that day were lost. All of them were in need of the one who comes to seek and to save that which is lost. So how does this story help us to frame and understand our purpose more meaningfully? We are tempted to look at our lives and to think of ourselves as being pretty good. 
We're better than the Zacchaeuses of this world. We're better than those corrupt, immoral sinners all around us. Or we can not judge ourselves by looking at other people, we can judge ourselves by looking at our good works. I give so much to the church. I serve so many things I do. And we can think that that's what makes us righteous, but in reality, all of us are lost and in darkness and in need of the one who comes to bring light to those who are in darkness and to find those who are lost. And so all of us sit in the position of needing the Savior, but having received the Savior, if today you've received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now you're in a new position. That God sends you, he sends me, to go out into the darkness of this world, to bear witness to the truth, to bring light to those who are in darkness, to share the gospel, to preach it to those who are in need so that they would experience life and that more abundantly that Jesus gives because he is the one who seeks to save that which is lost. So in light of that, I wanna encourage you to look at your situation, the circumstance you find yourself in, the house you live in, the neighbors you live next door to, the school campus you're on, the construction site you're working, the office building you go to. And maybe you find yourself in that situation, you feel like there's not much meaning here, there's not much purpose here, I don't even know why I'm here. I wanna suggest to you that God has purposed that you would be in that place. And I want to encourage you to do this. Point number five, purpose to seek out those that are lost and despised. Do you realize that the places you go on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, throughout this week are places that Pastor Ross will probably never be? But God placed you there to bring light to those who are in darkness. How many of you would say there's a little bit of darkness in the places you find yourself in week in and week out? I work at church, I probably shouldn't raise my hand. <laughs> I wanna encourage you. God put you there, that you might become one who is following or adopting his seeking purpose. There's a lot of people in our world today seeking for a purpose. And Jesus had a seeking purpose, to seek and to save that which is lost. And now he is given to you and given to me that call to go and to adopt his purpose in this place. Because I think, and I think you'd agree, California is a place that needs the grace of Jesus, Amen. light of the truth in a big way. Father, we thank you for your grace, your grace that is so wonderful and Lord, every one of us need it so much. Lord, I pray that you'd pour out your grace in abundance upon your church. You'd fill us to overflowing that we would overflow to other people this week. Lord, you're gonna lead your disciples here into various places throughout the Bay Area over the next five, six, seven days. And Lord, I pray that you'd shine your light upon us and through us to those who are in, in darkness, in need. The Zacchaeuses of this world. Those who feel like outcasts, feel like they're overlooked, feel despised. God, use us to bring the good news of your gospel and grace to them, that in you there is life and that more abundantly. Pour out your spirit upon your church. Give us boldness 
to share this great, good, glorious news, to not be ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is your power unto salvation to everyone who believes. We praise you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 